0: Good afternoon everyone, a very warm welcome to you um, and to the UCL lunch hour lecture. Uh, It's a great pleasure to see you all today and it's a delight to introduce Dr. Bill McLehose who is going to talk to us about the contribution of Islamic thought and Islamic science to science more generally. Welcome Bill.
1: Great. Thank you Uh, and and thanks to the organisers as well. Um, now, in a different form last year, at the, almost exactly this time, I, I gave uh, the, the elements of this talk began uh, when I was invited by the UCL Islamic Society uh, to discuss the, the issue that you've just mentioned, the impact of Islamic uh, science um, on the general uh, pattern of science. Well, while the title that I have used today reflects that purpose, um, I want to actually shift things slightly um, and move towards more uh, of the material that I actually uh, specifically work on. Um, that is, I will give you a sense of the many ways um, in which we see very innovative science uh, in the Islamic medieval period. Uh, but because there are a lot of new and, and very high quality general overviews of this material, um, <clears throat> I've decided that I will give just a quick survey of that and then move on to uh, to, uh, the the specific area that I work on uh, which is a subfield within the history of medicine uh, and it deals specifically with the brain and mental disorders. So, I'm going to actually give a mixture of of overview and and thoughts on on the field that I study. So, I will definitely indicate uh, uh, the Islamic contributions to science but also give some more in-depth study of of, uh, uh, the realm that we could perhaps call psychology. But let's set the stage first. Um, And that is, I want to begin uh, with focusing on Baghdad in the years, well, the the centuries between the 9th and the 11th century uh, AD, or second, sorry, third and fourth centuries um, of of, uh, the Islamic calendar. Um, By this point, um, uh, the Islamic world has undergone a number of major transformations. And I do hope you can see that properly with this slide, um, uh, we have, uh, the, the Muslim world had, had moved from being a tiny movement at the beginning of the seventh century that was centered in the Saudi Peninsula to quickly becoming a major empire, stretching from the Punjab to, to the Pyrenees. Now, in the process of this very rapid expansion, uh, Islam is both a religious and political entity, incorporated a wide variety of, of cultures and peoples. Um, That is, the major civilizations that the Islamic forces encountered, particularly the Greeks and the Persians, began to radically alter the ways in which Muslims came to view the world in a a scientific way. That is, the sophisticated cultures of the Byzantine Greek and Persian empires, and it was the latter of those that actually ended with Islamic conquest, um, um, had a long-standing tradition uh, of Islamic, of scientific study well before um, those conquests. Particularly, there were written traditions that were documented what scholars uh, had thought about and had, how they would tried to make sense of the natural world around them. Uh, and it was these that, uh, that came into uh, contact with, with the Islamic world. <clears throat> now, as the empire expanded after 630, that is after the, um, uh, for, uh, soon after the death of, of the prophet Muhammad, the center of gravity shifted away from uh, Medina and Mecca Uh, first to Damascus and then uh, to what was then a very small backwater town uh, on the Tigris, that is the the city we now call Baghdad. Um, It was this transformation, the move uh, kind of north and eastward uh, that began a a shift in the way in which uh, Islam kind of viewed itself. First of all, we had a lot of non-Arabs involved in this and as we'll see non-Muslims, Uh, but also we have um, a uh, a city that is built heavily on Persian traditions uh, with Greek influences as well. So we have the original city of Baghdad was a perfect circle. Uh, It was known as the city of peace, and the center of it was uh, the the palace of the Caliph, that is the the, uh, supreme leader of of the the new empire. This, this old city, um, this original city of Baghdad is now sadly, entirely um, gone, long since gone, uh, but what does survive to give us some sense of, of the architecture and the splendor of, of the place is uh, not far from Baghdad is, are the ruins of um, a caliphal uh, a palace in Samara and here we have a minaret uh, beautifully um, uh, erected to, to give you that, that sense of, of the glory of this period. Baghdad quickly became uh, the, uh, the very impressive uh, site. That is, it showcased the wealth and the power of the Abbasid dynasty, uh, which ruled um, during the periods uh, that we're concerned with specifically between, uh, I'm concerned with about 850 to about 1050. <coughs> uh, this is the period uh, that uh, many of the tales of the 1001 Nights uh, are based uh, on one of the, the major caliphs of, of this period uh, and certainly uh, by the beginning of the ninth century, Baghdad was a center not, not just of politics and of commerce but also uh, a center of learning. <clears throat> now, the caliphs in Baghdad had uh, followed a, a Persian model uh, which was to uh, be patrons of not just uh, various arts that would glorify uh, the. Um, Uh, the the rule but also even uh, scholars of many types, not just religious scholars but also scholars uh, in many different fields of science. So, uh, we have a sense of patronage that from the very top of society we see occurring in in Baghdad Uh, and uh, the patronage particularly of uh, a number of sciences uh, that we're concerned with, the image on the right, by the way, is an image of Aristotle as seen in a uh, medieval manuscript. Uh, He's the one with the darker skin. Uh, And uh, is identified by an inscription next to him. Now, the problem was that there was no written Arabic tradition of investigating the natural world in a scientific way. That is, uh, much of the new material uh, that entered in terms of astronomy, in terms of, of medicine and uh, mathematics, etc., was heavily Greek and some Persian, um, <clears throat> and there was, in a sense, a vogue of interest in these ancient Greek and Persian materials. Uh, and this led, in fact, to, to Baghdad becoming a center uh, in the ninth century of translation, of kind of gathering together all the knowledge uh, from the rest of the world of how the world works. And this was uh, accomplished through a number of scholars of many different backgrounds. That is, there were Christians, there were Jews, there were Persians or Austrians, as well as Muslims, um, (coughs) who studied together and made accessible this material um, that predated uh, the Islamic uh, Caliphate. Now the period is sometimes known quite imaginatively as the age of translations. This is not; uh, scholars are not the most imaginative creatures, I suppose. Uh, but it is um, the, uh, the the period also of uh, where we have the shift or a, a distinction between uh, the sciences of of, of religion uh, and the sciences of reason, uh, or the sciences of nature. Uh, and these are the terminologies that are used in this. Um, uh, in this period, that is, revelation, God's uh, uh, a revelation to Muhammad uh, and reason are not necessarily opposed to one another, but they are made distinct as different fields of study. <coughs> but I also want to indicate that this is more than simply a period of passive acceptance of earlier knowledge, uh, that is to say, as we'll see, there are thinkers, um, including some of the translators, uh, who were pushing well beyond uh, the materials that they'd found in the older um, uh, manuscripts that they were working with. Uh, and I'll just quickly give you some sense of where, uh, where this material uh, landed. Uh, in astronomy, we have um, a very strong focus on not just uh, measuring uh, the stars, uh, but also even astrology, things that we would perhaps not consider uh, uh, relevant to to modern science, uh, and certainly we have a good amount of technology, particularly with uh, the kind of perfecting different forms of technology, such as astrolabes, that could measure precisely when and where uh, the stars were and where they would be, would be going. This was immensely useful for uh, and crucial for um, dating uh, uh, various things, including um, the beginning of, of Ramadan and, and various other crucial uh, religious uh, moments. Uh, so astronomy has, has both practical and uh, and and purely theoretical uh, purposes, uh, and the use of, of, of being able to map out not just the stars but also the uh, the earthly realm uh, is another area in which we see some incredible changes. Uh, this is a map uh, of of the world. I've purposely inverted it. It's actually upside down, um, so that you can make out what it all means. That is, you can hopefully see uh, the uh, you can make out, hopefully, the, the uh, Iberian Peninsula uh, and perhaps the boot of Italy uh, over towards the left. Uh, and certainly, front in, oh, in, in the exact center, you see the Saudi Peninsula uh, quite uh, appropriately. Uh, and this is uh, a map for the 12th century. It actually comes uh, from uh, a tradition that comes out of, uh, of, of a Muslim who was working for the Norman kings of Sicily. Uh, a man named Aladrisi, Alidri- and uh, uh, but it definitely reflects a long-standing carto- cartography and geography uh, of the Islamic world that is in part based on um, on the ancient Greeks. Uh, and it's this uh, with with incredible precision. We have uh, far more detailed maps than these uh, that were were used for navigational purposes and otherwise uh, for uh, uh, in terms of, of, of mapping out the uh, the empire of of the Abbasids and and uh, later dynasties. Uh, just uh, to, to add a few other illustrations, we have some in, intriguing interest in, in, in how technologies uh, could be used for, for various practical and purely entertainment-based purposes. Uh, one famous figure, though there are many others, is al-Jazari, uh, who in the early 13th century created uh, a number of mechanized uh, uh, items, some of which were very you know, productive uh, pumps and others were automata, the kind of, some people argue they're the first robots uh, in the sense that they are moving usually clocks that would allow for the, the, these drums and horns to play without human intervention. That is, it was a mechanism uh, often water-based uh, that would lead to uh, this uh, mechanisms being, uh, these, these being triggered and the sounds being produced. There are also water uh, bearers and, 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 uh, and other uh, robots or automata along these lines. But it is, as I said, um, uh, uh, this is a period where, uh, where we have a, a good amount of, of material. Uh, but what I want to focus on uh, is something quite different from this, and that is uh, what I've told you is that uh, so far is material that's actually quite, n- quite well known uh, and, out, and, and certainly out there. Uh, And as I said, what I want to turn to uh, is the history of medicine and particularly focus, move towards what I um, uh, am am studying these days. Now, most of my research, I should be clear, uh, has up until fairly recently focused on the Western reception of Arabic medicine and science. That is, why did uh, in the 11th and 12th centuries, why did the West begin to recognize that, Suddenly, uh, there was this huge amount of much more advanced material that was available in the Islamic world, but of which the West was ignorant. Um, So, I've usually looked at it from from that uh, perspective rather than uh, uh, looking at Islam itself until fairly recently as my Arabic skills uh, improve. But what I want to indicate is that in the field of medicine, uh, the reason that the West uh, in the medieval period started looking to the Arabic world was that there was a rich literature that, uh, that had not survived the fall of Rome in the West. Uh, and that did survive um, and, and flourished in the Islamic world. And one of the more famous uh, uh, cases is of, of a man who uh, was, began to translate the Greek materials into Syriac and then Latin. Uh, uh, and uh, a man named Hunayn ibn Ishaq, Uh, And he famously was also um, uh, uh, an expert in eye diseases and has quite a few very important treatises on ophthalmology and um, uh, pathologies of the eye. Now, uh, and it's also in that field that that many others uh, uh, had worked on in, in the realm of optics. Now, the uh, other areas in which, uh, in terms of history of medicine, we see some very important changes uh, are particularly in the field of, of surgery. That is, uh, there's a very heavy focus, as we'll see, on the practical side of things, not simply elaborating the theory of the past, uh, but also kind of saying, well, how do, we, how do we apply this to actually, you know, healing people when it comes to uh, at least medicine? Uh, and so we have a huge number of treatises that, that address the issue of what surgical instruments could be used uh, for what purposes? And so here is actually a 12th century, um, well, sorry, 11th century uh, Spanish uh, writer uh, who has a very important text on surgical uh, uh, instruments that, with with hundreds of illustrations, that give you a sense of, of the variety of surgical uh, procedures that were done. Uh, and it is it is an impressive uh, collection of of both illustrations and and procedures. Now. In terms of pharmacology, just to mention, again, quite briefly, we have not just the traditional focus on herbal medicine uh, and an expansion of that with, with uh, uh, the connections with India and, and with China and, and further east uh, that the Islamic world had, but also um, beginning particularly with, uh, with uh, the figures I'll be looking at, uh, beginning with the 9th, 10th centuries, we have a focus on distillation and the process of, creating new and much more powerful uh, forms of, of pharmacology that were based on uh, these kind of uh, processes that we would, that are sometimes seen as the origins of chemis- chemistry, that is the alchemical des- des- desire to, to distill the essence of, of various um, uh, plants and, and, and uh, metals, etc. We'll come back to pharmacology in, in just a moment. But as I said, what I uh, am going to focus on is not um, all of that, but particularly on physiology and pathology of the brain. Uh, because it's this um, that I want to, uh, it's here that I actually see quite a few very important changes uh, that, uh, that really suggest some, some, more, some greater substance to the contributions than a laundry list of, of uh, innovations. Now, the materials on the brain, and I've given you a very abstracted view of, by the way, of the nervous system. This is uh, uh, not meant to, uh, to uh, uh, do much more than simply lay the, front, lay the, the groundwork for, for the idea that they're interested in how the nerves work. So the questions that are being asked in these discussions, uh, the medical discussions of what it is that, uh, causes mental disturbance uh, have to do with a number of, of, of very basic questions. That is, you know, what, what is the origin of stress? What are the origins of emotion? How do mental states affect the body and vice versa? Uh, that, and what is the role of, of this, of the nervous system, in both thought and feeling? I mean, they're asking these huge questions, uh, you know, about rationality and irrationality. Why is it that? Humans who are by definition rational, so often not. Um, and ultimately these are questions that get to the basis of, of cognition, the basis of why and how we think. And these are uh, certainly central to what uh, these physicians and sometimes metaphysicians are arguing. <coughs> I'm sorry. Uh, the sources uh, that, we, that we find here identify a number of new mental uh, diseases. That is, uh, uh, we have uh, instantly we might think of insanity as the most crucial uh, uh, kind of litmus test for studying the history of, the, of, of mental disorder. Um, but in fact, there's a huge number of different texts and different materials uh, that uh, discuss the spiritual, the behavioral, and even what we would call the psychological elements of of, uh, these diseases of the brain as they're known. As we find just this, uh, I can give you a quick quick list of some of the categories we have delusions, we have anxiety, we have migraines, insomnia, mania, melancholy, strokes, coma, catalepsy, fears, obsessions, love sickness, it's considered a pathology here, Uh, and perhaps um, most entertainingly something entitled lycanthropy which is the belief That the sufferer imagines himself to be a wolf or a dog, sometimes a cow and uh, a rooster. Um, There's a famous story by Ibn Sina about curing a man of thinking he's a cow, and wants to be slaughtered. In fact, Uh, the uh, the material, despite the humor of that 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 story, uh, uh, was like so much of the scientific uh, material influenced by Greek medicine, particularly the thought of the second century writer Galen. Uh, But the Islamic materials moved well beyond uh, the Greek sources in both theoretical understandings and, as we'll see, in practical applications. Part of this is due to religious uh, considerations. That is, the monotheistic tradition uh, uh, with which we're dealing brought with it a complex metaphysical understanding of the relation between body and soul. At the same time, uh, historically, these physicians were uniquely aware Uh, of what we would call the psychological and even psychosomatic (coughs) um, disturbances uh, of the brain. But the physicians saw these conditions not as religious or moral concerns, uh, the idea of God punishing or testing people, which was quite common, but instead they viewed mental disease uh, as illnesses simply of the brain, that is uh, with equally bodily and mental origins, but not particularly. Uh, external spiritual uh, sources. One of the most famous physicians, Ar-Razi, known in the West as Razi's, uh, who died around, well, 925, um, uh, wrote about both bodily and spiritual medicine, arguing that the two were not mutually exclusive, but suggesting that the physician should address both of these. Physics like Arrazi and uh, his even more famous uh, later uh, contemporary, that is, uh, later figure, uh, Ibn Sina, known as Avicenna, uh, uh, among many others, focused on the emotions and even stress based illnesses, as well as illnesses with very clearly bodily origins. And by the way, note just to give you a sense of how powerful later uh, Avicenna was, uh, here he is crowned uh, between the two major figures of the Greek world, Galen and Hippocrates, but he stands in the middle, and for reasons of partial mistranslation, um, he was thought to have been a prince, but he also was considered the prince of doctors. <clears throat> now, it's not simply in the kind of theoretical study of, 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 uh, of uh, the brain that, uh, that we see. Um, Uh, figures, uh, Islamic uh, medics uh, concerned. It's also in the treatment of those diseases that we see some very innovative techniques and as we'll see, institutions. The Islamic hospital, for example, uh, was a very unique phenomenon in the medieval world for a number of reasons, not least of which was the treatment of the insane. This is the very first time, in fact, when we get uh, hospitals in which there are uh, clearly uh, identified sections for uh, the mentally ill, and the very structure of the hospitals incorporated these spaces uh, for the medical treatment of the mad, Uh, and they are, as I said, the very very first recorded uh, instances of such phenomena. But more important is how the insane were treated, that is the therapeutics were actually quite uh, humane for the time at least and rarely used violence or restraint. And if you know anything about the history of mental illness and its treatment, you'll know that it's a history that's littered uh, with uh, records of violence and, uh, and incarceration and, and uh, uh, physical restraint, uh, even assault on patients. But in this uh, material, there's a quite a major difference. That is. There were certainly pharmacological remedies that were being used, mostly herbs, um, even some narcotics. Uh, But far more important uh, than medication was a heavy focus on the environment, Um, that is uh, also the habits and lifestyle of the patient. Islamic hospitals were carefully planned structures, and there was a heavy reliance on physical space, particularly gardens and fountains. Uh, for healing purposes. The idea was this would soothe the soul of the the ill patient. Um, So uh, now the recognition of of different responses uh, to to these diseases as as unique from purely bodily uh, ailments (coughs) was central to the search for both the cure and the care of these patients. Uh, That is altering the patient's environment and focusing on calming the sufferer became essential to the treatment of the mad. <clears throat> but even more revealing than the treatment treating uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the insane in institutions uh, were the treatments that were suggested for, for the average person's uh, mental uh, distress. That is, people who did not uh, require hospitalization or at least removal from the public realm. Uh, but just the average person who is feeling stress or or some uh, disruption. For these less troublesome illnesses, physicians focused on a much more holistic view, looking at both the bodily and mental state of the patient. Like the the hospital patient, the sufferer's diet and exercise were to be altered uh, as well as things like pleasing walks and music uh, and relaxing baths. This is a focus on what's known as regimen in this period. For those suffering from, say, anxious thoughts, physicians recommended hunting, drinking but despite Islamic prohibition, some competitive sports and even playing chess, anything that would distract uh, the patient from, from uh, and thus turn him or her away uh, from the disturbing thoughts. Arazi even uh, suggested that, he would f- uh, that, that the patient should find an advisor uh, who would discuss or perhaps we could say analyze uh, the, uh, the emotional, mental uh, and behavioral dilemmas and faults from which the person suffered. <clears throat> Even the food uh, that, we, that we consume was considered essential, and that's appropriate for a lunchtime lecture as you munch away on, on unhealthy crisps and, and, and sweets. Uh, because the idea of, of, of connecting what we take into our bodies with how the bodies then function and how the brain then feels and responds uh, was made very explicit in this material. Now, I've suggested uh, a number of connections here between past uh, and and present, Uh, but I want to make it clear that the body was understood very, very differently uh, from how modern science, of course, sees the human body. I don't mean to suggest in saying any of this uh, that the origins of modern psychology somehow lie in the Islamic world. Uh, Instead, I I I want to say that, make it very clear, that the body and mental processes, as they're understood in this period, uh, were very, very different, radically so, uh, from our own. That is, the the focus here is on a humoral system that the body is made up of different liquids uh, and certainly, the correlation of body and soul is something that we, don't necessarily, certainly in the sciences don't necessarily consider and we've lost that tradition (coughs) or at least excluded it. Um, But I do want to indicate, despite this, that early Islamic medicine shows a very clear understanding, uh, an interest in the psychosomatic, the psychological, uh, in the holistic view that is expressed so often in these sources. This reflects a desire in this period for a rational study of the irrational or the non-rational in humans. Uh, What is the relation, the Islamic physicians and metaphysicians are asking, between emotion and reason, between the passionate and the rational aspects of human life? Now, some of the theories and therapies, uh, such as the focus on soothing, on calming, on distracting, and the awareness of the connections between mental state and health uh, might surprise us, might even sound a bit contemporary. And I want to, uh, and that, that actually has uh, some, some relevance, I think. Uh, but such observations are not necessarily as dramatic as some radical new discovery in, uh, in astronomy by, by Galileo or, uh, or some radical new understanding of, of, of maths. Uh, but I do want to under- suggest that these changes in understanding and treating diseases of the brain, also known as diseases of the soul, diseases of reason, present one way in which medieval Islamic science was at times both innovative and potentially relevant to the modern world. So, thank you.
0: Thanks, Bill. That was a fascinating talk, and I'm sure there are lots of questions. We have about 10 minutes for them, and um, we have some lovely assistants here with roving mics, so if you have a question, just put up your hand. Yes, this one over there.
1: Did the uh, traditions of uh, treating uh, psychologically ill patients with the kind of liberalism and kindness that you've outlined, did, did they die out or did they perpetuate themselves? And if so, where would you look for that perpetuation? Right. Um, well, th- there is an alternate uh, 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 view that, that outside, even in some hospitals and certainly outside of hospitals, uh, w- there are images, there are references to the mad being treated in, in quite less, you know, uh, less positive ways. Uh, so the question of why of did this did this uh, uh, fall apart well it, it's it's not quite uh, no i don 't think it did in fact, many of these hospitals still survive to this day i mean i've I've shown you uh, some images from hospitals that are well if not still in use then still structurally um, uh, recognized uh, as for for being majorly important hospitals so uh, the material is one thing that people perhaps don't fully uh, understand is that there is a tradition that still survives, Unani medicine, uh, that follows Avicenna's principles um, and still uh, works from, from a humoral uh, uh, framework and follows a lot of these views on, on um, uh, the treatment of the insane. So, in fact, it, it hasn't fully disappeared at all. Uh, and uh, it's just in terms of, of the Western world, uh, Western hospitals went in a very different direction. So, the split is actually with the rise of, of, of the hospital in the West, you have a focus that's more on initially on treating the poor uh, and then eventually on treating the ill. Uh, and if and when eventually uh, the, the mentally ill enter, it's, it's usually much, much less humane. So, the, tr- the, the difference is the shift to, to uh, in, in Western hospitals, not in the Islamic
0: world. Yes, there's a question here.
1: Thank you for the talk. I just wanted to ask um, because this talk really focused on the positive. Sorry? This talk really focused on the positive influence of Islam on science. Mm. Was there ever a case when it had a bad influence on science? <laughs> well, it depends how you're defining positive, I suppose. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, Yeah. The question was: Are there moments if 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 the focus has been, uh, and and not just by me but by many, on looking for positive influences of Islamic science on uh, science that's performed now, uh, are there examples of 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 negative uh, moments? And uh, the answer would: I I don't have an an easy explanation. Um, But there are. The question is more one of this, uh, one can, in the Renaissance, the argument was it was Islamic medicine that held back, Islamic science that held back the West. Um, That mistranslations of the classics and kind of slavish acceptance of what Aristotle or Galen said was what was restraining um, the world. So historiographically, this is a way of correcting that view of the negative impact uh, of Islam, so you can find, Plenty of evidence of that in much older writings. Um, but in terms of, of specific examples, let me think about that. I may have to get back to you on that one.
0: <laughs> yes, it's one
1: thank Hi, th- thank you for the talk. Um, specifically, what do you think it is about the Islamic civilization that enabled these practices to proliferate rather than the Byzantine or any other civilization during the course of the last 1,000 years. Well, I think they, they could have potentially arisen in in Byzantium actually, because the hospital, the Islamic hospital, comes out of Byzantine uh, uh, traditions. But um, it becomes uh, it, it's the, it's the emphasis on on funding actually in some ways. It, so, so much of, of science comes back to money uh, that uh, you have. Uh, the support of these hospitals from the highest levels, from the caliphs downward, uh, so that uh, you have a good amount of material. The hospitals that survive from the 11th, 12th centuries are massive. And it's only in the Islamic world that you find anything like that structure. Uh, So perhaps if there had been the the money put into say the Byzantine world, it's possible that that you would find Parallel institutions. There is a case in the 12th century of a Byzantine blueprint for a hospital that would have included these things after Islam had already incorporated them, but it was only a blueprint. It was never fully put into into uh, uh, um, uh, into into uh, function. So. Uh, so, it, it's possible it could have, but uh, so I'm not sure there's anything specifically uh, uh, distinguishing uh, the, the Byzantine from the uh, Islamic there. Uh, what I would say is that, uh, that there is an interest in psychology that Avicenna in particular demonstrates that you just don't find in the later Greek uh, medical materials. And that might be the closer connection between metaphysics and, and medicine in the Islamic world that's lost in the, in the that's not there in the, in the, in the Byzantine world.
0: Question lady in the blue there, and then come back to you. Hi. Uh, so to what extent do you think um, the actual influence is religion-based as opposed mm-hmm. to just culture or like the way people think in that era?
1: Oh, I do think that's a good part of it. Um, there's, uh, uh, but it's it's not always entirely clear. I mean, the the, the focus on, uh, on on insanity is possibly has some chronic elements to it that certainly would, would could help explain uh, this uh, the kind of greater respect for at least lack of physical assault on uh, the uh, uh, the mad. But at the same time you could find parallels in the Christian world for, for that kind of treatment and certainly uh, in terms of medicine you find the treatment of insanity is a very common way in which both both Christian and Islamic cultures uh, kind of had religious uh, healing, that is demonic, you know, uh, removing the demonic possession that was thought religiously sometimes to cause um, madness. Because keep in mind in, in uh, in, in Arabic, the term, the, 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 the root of, of the term majnun is, is jinn. Uh, so it, it refers to this notion of possession. Uh, and the, uh, you find the same in, in the West. But at the same time, there is also, despite that religious focus on exorcism, you've got a very different language in the medical world that is, if not entirely secular, then far more secular than focused on Quranic or biblical. Um, argumentation, so, so you've got both in some ways. There's
0: a question right at the top.
1: Um, you say that it came from the very top, the funding. Um, was there some sort of religious compensation for providing these uh, mm. things? Uh, because it, it must make a huge difference politically if um, people at the top provide them, unlike... Our modern politics, <laughs> um, which is uh, good give to the rich and take from the poor. Okay, fair enough. Uh, certainly, I, I, I do uh, think that, that the compensation is, is, is perhaps, is often uh, seen as being ideological, that, that somehow the idea that this is what a good ruler does and a good moral upstanding rulers so whether you were and as I said it comes from the Persian tradition so uh, this the the Persian Empire was uh, was Zoroastrian in its state religion uh, and that was this was this had, this had both moral and political implications um, so the compensation was perhaps in an afterlife um, as well as in the present um, but the question of why of, of why the funding was was uh, uh, for both translation and for hospitals, et cetera, was so. Uh, what was at the highest levels um, is not hasn't been fully um, satisfactorily uh, explained. You know, why do you get that to such an extent? And the secular sciences at that, and some that are not inherently practical for political purposes. That's what's never been fully kind of explained. Why people are interested? Why at the highest secular levels you find such interest? But I agree with, with uh, some of your other observations. <laughs> okay.
0: One final question, perhaps, if you, yeah. Thanks,
1: um, thanks for the talk. Uh, I just want to ask, so this era has always been uh, known as the golden age of Islamic investigation and in science. Um, right. Can you tell me what kind of, what were the time points where this began to go into decline? And if, if you know any of the factors that might have led to it? Mm. Yeah, I, I purposely avoided that. That's actually um, one of the reasons that, uh, that uh, one, of the, one of the things I discussed last year. And, and it's a very irritating point and one that actually depends on what ideological interest you have in making the argument. Um, so if you were to draw a graph, then uh, the, the very moment that is seen as the, lo- the nadir of Western medicine, medicine and science is precisely the um, kind of moment of, of of the golden age of of Islamic science, and conversely, Islamic science is seen as declining, just as Western science is rising, and to me, that's a very dangerous uh, kind of ideological uh, explanation for things. Um, there is uh, the, so perhaps if, if the chronology is almost correct then the question is why um, in, say, the 13th century and later, do we see fewer uh, scientists uh, uh, and and, and medics uh, doing this kind of work? Uh, And and it's it's not entirely clear. There's a huge amount that hasn't been done, say, on Ottoman history that's only being done now. And on uh, the Mughal side of things as well, the influence of of India on on the uh, uh, the Islamic, um, early Islamic world is, is something that's, that's, that's kind of almost untouched for partially linguistic uh, uh, failures. Um, so uh, personally I don't like to kind of to, uh, to, to even address those issues because they are so loaded with the idea, the very name, notion of, of naming a lecture the influence of Islam on science uh, is, is built upon the notion that it once had an impact And it implies, even unintentionally, the idea that that it once had an impact that it no longer has. And that it, Islam, is a single entity, which, you know, the the difficulty of all of those elements. You could parse the entire title that I've chosen uh, and destroy it, if you like. Um, But I I just, all I'll I'll say on that, that issue is there are multiple explanations, none of them, uh, easy, and none of them fully uh, explain things. But also, you should always be aware of why people would make those arguments and what people intend—not you, I'm saying—but when, when they when they uh, when they ask those questions. Yeah.
0: Mm, I think that's an excellent note to end on. Please join me in <laughs> thanking Bill for uh, his great. <laughs>